We've been fighting a long time, and we have all lost so very much, so many loved ones gone. But you are not alone. There are pockets of resistance all around the planet. We are at the brink. You have no idea how important you are. If you're listening to this, you are the resistance. Welcome, everybody. Steve with Sense Fidel. And coming at you with a guest you're probably familiar with, Father Lawrence Carney, the modern-day apostle of the Holy Face image and devotion. But we're talking about today, St. Francis de Sales. But first, Father Carney, how you doing? Welcome back. I'm doing better than ever, Steve. Thanks for having me. Yeah, no problem. No problem. Thanks for saying yes. <laughs> you're welcome. So, Tan Books is coming out with this new, uh, I guess, a signature series. I'll put it up on the screen, uh, promoting France to the sales. Uh, before everyone had a heart attack on the price, uh, it's very well done binding, and it's multiple books, uh, Introduction to Devout Life, Consoling Thoughts, the Sermons, and what we're talking about today, the controversies, the Catholic controversies of France to the sales, which converted, what do they say, 66,000 Calvinists in the area, 72, so 72,000. 72,000. I, I go under a little bit numbers. Yeah. Uh, why is this book so important? Well, St. Francis de Sales, when he was ordained for a priest for one year, he was assigned to go into the city of Chavois, which was Switzerland. Now it's France. And he was supposed to convert all the 72,000 people that had become Calvinist in the last 60 years. So he went there with his cousin, who was a canon. His name was Lewis on September the 14th in 1594. And it's really awesome what they did, Steve, is they consecrated their mission to the guardian angel of the city, of the diocese. So they had a lot of power with the angelic warriors working for them. But it was too much for Canon Lewis. He couldn't stand the brutal conditions that St. Louis de Montfort was living in. Um, he didn't really have a place to stay because the Protestants, the Calvinists, were so hostile towards him trying to bring Catholicism back. But he would stay some nights in a hayloft, and one night the wolves ran after him, and he had to climb a tree to escape them. And that's where he slept for the night, but he had to tie a rope around him himself so he wouldn't fall to the ground. And the next morning, the people had to take him down. And this is a man that was prone to illness. He was not someone that was a healthy guy. So this was quite an experience. So later on, we'll talk about talk about this some more. But this is the context, the setting of him trying to convert seventy two thousand Calvinists back to the Catholic Church. And he did some preaching, and he got stones thrown at him and jeering. 
So he started writing pamphlets and he slipped them under the doors. And that's what makes up the Catholic controversy are these pamphlets. It's a, it's a pretty thick book for, I mean, you think pamphlets, you think in a couple of pages, but this is, he did, he wrote a lot. Yeah, there's the book I'm looking at now has over 400 pages in it, but that's not to scare anybody because it's one of the best catechisms ever. Yeah. Pope Pius the, the 11th in 1877 said, this book is, quote, a full and complete demonstration of the Catholic religion. So, you know, I think of guys that are in action and they're writing like soldiers or like St. Francis de Sales when he was writing on his knees to St. Ignatius of Loyola, but he's baptizing one to two million people while he's writing. So there's a lot of love and humility in these pamphlets because he's a man that's a contemplative first, but he's also on the ground bringing souls back to God and snatching them from hell. And that's why I think so many people like the Catholic controversy, a defense of the faith. It's not something you're going to read in about three days. It's something you're going to maybe use as a reference. It's a great apologetic work. I remember reading it a decade ago, maybe. And it's the words, even is everyone talks about how gentle and meek he was. And he was, I mean, the story about him talking about the, maybe I think he, he upset a guy and he ended up saying, you know, I see I've, I've upset you. I will back away. I'll move. I'll go to this corner. But in his words, in his writings, he did not hold back calling the Calvinists your pretend religion, your pretend uh, priest, your pretend this and that. He, he, went, he was meek, but he was stern. Yes, he was. Perhaps some of that is because he did this when he was between the age of 27 and 29. So he had a lot of, you know, uh, just fervor. He had fervor his whole life. But some of these great men like Venerable Leo de Pont we talk about in the past, yeah. they, they, they start to get more gentle as they get older. So he was younger. And he was a saint then. So, uh, I mean, he would say things like you said, like, where is your mission? You know, yeah. you've got to be sent to preach the kingdom of God because Jesus is the one that has authority sent. So where is your mission? And he said, he makes distinctions. He's like St. Thomas. I mean, he's a doctor of the church. That's another reason why people should read this. He makes distinctions about mission. Is your mission mediate? Or immediate and what does that mean well immediate means that it comes directly or it comes between a mediator there's the pope that sends or the bishop that sends a priest like he was sent by a bishop and then there's immediate that was sent directly by god like saint paul and like peter and the apostles so he said okay so who is sending you and they can only say, well, it's not by the authority of any other mediating man like a pope, but it's actually God's doing it to us. He says, okay, if that's true, then you have to have miracles. So where are your miracles? And they couldn't pro provide any. So he just kept fighting. You know, it was a dogfight. He just kept putting the truth out there. And his, his life of uh, sacrifice being in that tree living in, not even a place they could call his home. Uh, just that, that charity and that zeal. He would just walk around 
for four years. And eventually the people just broke down and said, we got to, we got to join this man because this man has something that we don't have. And that is, he's got the fullness of God and the true church. The only way to get to heaven. As a, I mean, even he obviously this whole book is about words, but it goes with his actions too. I mean, it wasn't just him being pretty much a doctor for apologetics, but remember that story about him being in the church and a guy standing in the back of the pillar thinking, oh, Francis is just one of those pompous guys. He, he just says one thing and does another. He only acts this way because everyone's watching and the church is empty and he's hiding in the corner. This guy's hiding in the corner and he sees Francis genuflect the exact same way he saw for an hour before when the place was packed. And he goes, he's on, he, he's authentic. He's, there's something to this. And it, I think that converted the man. Yeah, that's a very good point because that shows you that he wasn't doing it for show. He was actually doing it for God. So he had an interior life. And that's why he genuflected thinking that no one was there to see him, just like he would in front of everyone, because he's doing it out of reverence for God. He's not doing it as a show of any sort. So the interior life is key. And he was so deep in the interior life that it's it's through that that is one of the many reasons why 72,000 people came back to the Catholic Church. Um, you know, it took him two years of preaching before he could yeah. even attempt to do the first public mass in 60 years. And he did that. Then he tried soon after that to do Ash Wednesday, but that that met with a lot of hostility. They threatened to put him in prison and even to kill him. Hmm. So he had to escape by an open door. It reminds me of Jesus when they tried to kill him and he had to escape too. And it also reminds me of St. Athanasius, that saint against the world, you know, the Arians were coming after him and his his cathedral and he had to escape the back door and he went on a boat on the Nile and he changed his uh, bishop's clothes out and put on some simple clothing and they were pursuing him and St. Athanasius went into a cove and came right back towards them and they didn't recognize him. They said, is Athanasius, have you seen him? And Bishop Athanasius said, yes, he's near. So he didn't lie and he kept going and he escaped. So the escape yeah. stories are very amusing for bishops and, and priests that are out there doing the street preaching. And it talks about his courage because, I mean, none of us, I mean, I, I know you go on the streets, and you preach and you give out miraculous medals and rosaries and things like that, but you've never had the dog sicked on you, have you? Or uh, <laughs> having to climb over a tree that's frozen, over a frozen river just to say mass to get away from or hide, like you said, hide in a tree to sleep overnight with a rope just so that you didn't fall down to your death where they were going to kill you if you got to the ground. Yeah, I've had some scrapes with near death, believe it or not. Uh, one time, this was many years ago, uh, I was walking around with a friend. We were praying the rosary in St. Joseph, Missouri, and some guy shot a paintball gun at us. And we didn't know what was going on at first because we we saw that there was this stone wall next to the sidewalk 
and we yeah. saw that chips were flying from it and i got hit in the back and i fell to the ground and my friend fell to the ground he had pink liquid on his ear oh, and wow. we're like what's happening to us and he's long gone and we get up and it's like oh my that was a paintball gun and my friend said father carney you should have seen the disgust on your face i said yeah because i was carrying a rosary a crucifix i just went to confession that was martyrdom i was going straight to heaven if that was a real bullet because it would have gone right through my heart so that's the nearest i've come to death uh if you could say that that would be a death experience but it was a scary experience <laughs> those things sting on the flesh i mean you don't have padding on that's not exact that doesn't tickle no it doesn't tickle <laughs> uh, so he writes for two years i mean what was the mindset of him i mean he just keep pounding away perseverance i'm going to keep writing i mean this wasn't a type that you go on word and type up a thing and then hit copy for let's say i don't know 100 families get 100 copies and you're throwing under the door under each door you're just putting these papers in he had to physically write these each one by one to put it under the, the door so he's getting he's living out in the woods living in the streets trying to hide and writing and repeatedly writing not not cheat sheets or anything like that uh how do you do this yeah he would write by hand at the very beginning and then later on uh, there was a benefactor that helped him to get some of these things printed out. So these pamphlets were so convincing that people started to come to him and eventually he started 40 hours devotion, which I think it was somewhat of a new development in his mm -hmm. time in the 16th century. So at the beginning he had a church and maybe there was a hundred or 200 faithful that came the first time and it just kept growing and he would do processions from one church to another city so it would be i don't know if it was miles i can't remember but it would be a group of people and i think one of the last times there was twenty thousand people that were following the eucharist and you know it's like when somebody does something bad, you know, and others want to join them, it just becomes a mob. Well, this was the opposite. Having Eucharistic processions, when people saw this, they were like, well, I guess if everyone else is doing it, I ought to. So that's how our Lord used him to, to bring a conversion of 72,000 reversions. I mean, reversions, I love that word. We talk about conversion, which means to come to the truth, but reversion means to come back to the truth. So. We talk about, you know, Pope John Paul II, St. Pope John, he talks about the new evangelization. And I really have not been able to figure out what that is, but I've always thought St. Francis Sells already did it 400 <laughs> years ago, and that is to bring Catholics back. So we definitely have an opportunity for the new evangelization. I think he did it to do it just like him. I think if if we had St. Francis de Sells going to the major cities of the US to try this out. And they were just like him with the interior life, like genuflecting, like that man saw that was hiding behind the pillar. And just, I think that his example would bring back the Catholics. Imagine, Steve, if there was, if we had one out of every 10 priests 
that could just do what St. Francis de Sales did, just to go in a city, just put on your cassock, start walking around, talking to everyone, and pray and, and have an authentic prayer life. And just that's what I think would happen. That would be the new evangelization. So we have hit some, you know, that those are nice words to say, but some concrete examples. I think this is something I hope this interview or will help people to want to buy these books and and read about how this man, this this doctor of the church, this saint of the church, did evangelization. You know, after the first one, after the first time when the apostles went to the pagans, you know, when St. Francis, uh, when St. Francis Xavier went to India, those people never heard of Christianity, but every, the world has now. Yeah. So, so what's the new evangelization look like? I think St. Francis Sales has it all figured out. 72,000, just look at the fruits. What was, what was some of your be, uh, more favorite, uh, I would say, the tracks that are in the book that have stuck out throughout time for you? Yeah, what I like is, again, he talks about the mission, the first chapter, and he mm -hmm. speaks how the church is visible. And he says to the Calvinists, how do you have recourse to an invisible mission? From, he says it's it's probably from the principalities of darkness. So he calls them out, and basically says you're following the demons. That's pretty. That's really strong. And as he said, if you have an extraordinary mission, you know, for example, with having being sent by a, a physical man like the Pope or a bishop, then you cannot allege you have that unless it's proven by miracles. For example, Moses, he said, was asked and given the name of God. And he was given for signs of this commission, three prodigies and marvels, three attestations, three different languages. So he had these miracles too. And he says, if you don't have miracles, you're an imposter. Yeah. And he said, God is also not the author of dissension but of union and peace. And he goes to St. Paul, who wrote to the Corinthians in chapter 14 about how peace is the bond of charity, or, and charity is the bond of, of, of love and such. So you can see in Protestantism that there's just, the church is split up. You know, one sect, if it, they don't get along with each other, they just keep splitting. And he just says, no, that's not how it is, because God is the God of union. So and he also talks about apostolic succession. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, how he said, how does Calvin prove that he has apostolic succession, meaning who ordained him? Who was the direct line to the apostle? and all the bishops in between there that ordained him. So you gotta have apostolic succession. And the extraordinary um, mission cannot abrogate the ordinary mission. So- What is you know, that? God, that, down, that means if God comes to somebody and says, okay, Father Carney, this is God, 
and I'm going to give you an extraordinary mission. And so go out and preach, you know, A, B, C, and D. Well, if he gives me something that contradicts the Catholic Church and its ordinary mission of baptizing, then there's a big problem. And so what that means is the Calvinists had taken away some of the sacraments and said, we don't need those anymore. So that contradicts the ordinary mission of the church that Jesus Christ gave the Holy Spirit to the Catholic Church to have the seven sacraments and not to have any of them taken away just because of an opinion of someone. Again, and also, he, again, he doesn't hold back, but he's not mean. You know what yeah. I mean? It's not like he's smashing someone over the head, like maybe on social media. You get behind and you start telling, and you're kind of you're wanting to smack him across the face. He's not doing that. He's firm, but he's not. You know, uh, he's not trying to tick them off. Yeah, there's a thing that I've learned lately in some research I'm doing on the interior life, and there's a thing called bitter zeal. And you know, it's one thing that someone is not just being slothful and just apostatizing and leaving the church. But to have some zeal, that's good. But sometimes the beginners that are coming back to the church that have left it, or sometimes people just get stuck in being angry, it's called bitter zeal. Yeah. And he didn't have that because bitter zeal repulses people, but saints attract. So he was attracting people by his actions, his words, and of course in his prayer life, what he was thinking. He said also... You ministers have not been prophesied as preachers of the word of God. So that's pretty neat because in the Old Testament, we have all these prophecies of the Messiah coming and mm -hmm. uh, the, the film, fulfillment of prophecies. Well, where is it in the sacred tradition or the Bible that Calvin is going to be one of the future prophets? I mean, it, there's no such thing. And so he, he's just so wise. He just kept attacking this this untruth in so many ways that it was not only true and convincing, but he did it gently. And that's because going back to the beginning of his life, he was actually suffering for these people by not having a place to sleep. Yeah. I mean, there were no parishes in the city where a priest, a pastor could say, okay, Francis, you're going to sleep it here tonight. No, he was just in you know, the den of lions. He was in a very dangerous place, but he wanted to uh, possibly give up his life for the salvation of these people. So it reminds me of Jesus who said, I will leave the 99 sheep and go after the lost one. Well, that's what he was doing. He was going after the lost sheep. Was this something that he... Now was this one of those things that he knew right off the start? I got to do this. Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to write these pamphlets. Uh, there was there was some trial and error before this, right? Yeah, there was a year that he was ordained that he probably was doing some discernment of what to do. And my guess is he he asked God to provide for him the path that he needs to take. So I think that the bishop 
that was over the territory sent him. So he was sent on a mission and it was trial and error. If something didn't work uh, in his prayer life, he would ask God to show him how to do it differently. So he was humble. He, he yeah. writes so much about humility and charity. Yeah, I was just reading something today that he wrote. It's about that. It says, humility and charity are the Antiphonorians. All the other virtues are next to them. The preservation of a house depends upon the foundation of the roof. If we attend to which, the rest will give us no difficulty. So humility is like the basement and charity is like the roof. So anyone that owns a house, if he can take care of those two things, the rest stuff is pretty easy. But if you get the roof messed up and have leaks and don't fix it, you're going to get some major problems like mold. And if the foundation isn't right, humility, you're going to get some leaks in the basement. You're going to get some water problems that way. So he wrote about charity and humility together and how they work, and he lived it out. So when he was young, I was a young priest a while, too. I had to learn from my mistakes. And, you know, saints, they aren't perfect at the very beginning. Some of them are, but some of them have to learn. And I don't know about him, but I'm sure that he did some trial and error. There's a uh, story with my, uh, it's from the gentleman saint. Uh, you ever read that one? Uh, the bio, I can't remember the author. And it's on Francis, and it talks about this time when he, he's still not a priest yet, but he's wearing a hat. And back in those days, a hat was, you have the hat on, it's uh, you don't take someone else's hat. And uh, <laughs> somebody somebody takes his hat and goes up to gets in his grill and says, "What are you going to do about it? You going to turn the other cheek?" That's what your religion says. And he looks back at him and goes, I know what my religion says. I just don't know if I'm going to practice that right now. <laughs> and he got his hat back. <laughs> that sounds like Venerable Leo punching people at first. Yes. <laughs> yeah, holy uh, holy righteousness and holy indignation. Mm -hmm. But, uh, yeah, I mean, the, the stuff that he writes is – it's it's a page it's a page turner too. I mean, it's fantastic stuff. Like you said, he he hammers down on authority because Calvin's rejecting authority, and that's why all the Calvinists are you papists are listening to the Pope and all that. So he hammers on authority. Who sent you? Who's you know where'd you come from? Can I mean it's brilliant stuff. And this is apologetics one hundred and one. Yes, we have people that talk about call no man father, but if you don't have the basis like this, then after you get past call no man father, where where you go? I mean. Talk to the Mormons, talk to the J-dubs, all these others. You have to have this as a base. And he's almost doing like a 101 course in these pamphlets. Yeah, he talks about mission. And then he talks about, that's the first part. And then he talks in the second part, the rule of faith. And since he's a doctor of the church, anything that a doctor writes is valuable for any Catholic or anybody in general. And he, he speaks about Holy Scripture first. Uh -huh. so it's just your typical apologetics. Um, he says the Scripture is a true rule of the Christian faith and how jealous we should be of its integrity. 
So he speaks about how the word of God is alive. The Holy Spirit was the author and the instruments were authored peoples that were used like pencils or pins by the Holy Spirit. And then he goes in and says, the first violation of Holy Scripture made by the reformers by cutting off some of its parts. So that's what's interesting is how do people in these Protestant churches have the authority to slice and dice whatever books they don't like? I mean, that just, you just can't do that. And that's why some people come to me and they tell me what interpretation I should take for the Bible. And I says, okay, what's your basis? Are you Catholic? And they said, no, I'm not. Well, I say to them, well, pardon me, but the Catholic Church is the one that said this book will be in the Bible and this book will not be in the Bible. So they're the one to put the table of contents down. So shouldn't the ones that put the table of contents down be the authority to interpret what it means? And these people, yeah. oh, no, Father Carney, that's not, yeah, it's whatever I think. And so, you know, people like Father Ripperger say, imminentism, where the truth is eminently within me. Whatever I think is the truth. What's well, a bunch of bull malarkey? The truth comes from God. It's external. And if we accept it, that's one thing. If we reject it, it's another. So he goes right to it in Holy Scripture and just tells them you cut off some of the parts of Holy Scripture. And You know, when I tell people that, that are Protestant, <clears throat> some of them think, well, I never knew that. And it's kind of like a light starts to go off. Well, maybe that's, maybe I shouldn't be in this religion. So I think that really helped when he would tell people that it's, it's almost self-evident. You don't just take out parts of the Bible if it was written a thousand uh, in his time, 600 years ago. So for, for the average person sitting at home, maybe a Mrs. Grafalefalis or something like that, why would she want to read this? I mean, obviously the obvious answer, but for the average person, why would this be something that somebody should say, you know what, I need to make this purchase. I know about inter introduction to vow life. I know about the, uh, you know, for, for God by love. I know the other books. Why should I get the controversies? Well, as, as I have observed, we're living in the church's passion. Uh, it's a time when the church is going through an ecclesiastical winter. So the church has been very silent right now from the current magisterium and the preaching about the, the essential and fundamental rules of faith, of the truth, of why we're Catholic, why we're here, where are we going and how to get to heaven. So I encourage Catholics that want to better their lives to start doing spiritual reading. And when people say, oh, Father Carney, I just don't, I just don't like doing that. I just, it's just over my head. I'm like, okay, wait a minute. Have you ever asked God for the gift to do spiritual reading? Oh no, Father, I've never done that. Well, do that first. Then start to pick some easy books to read, like a doctor of the church here. It may seem like, well, he's a doctor of the church. That's too much for me. Well, doctors of the church are given to us by popes. They're only like 
uh, just over 33. They're given yeah, to 35 us. 35 now, yeah. 35 now, yeah. I, I thought it was more than 33 because the last I read was a long time ago. But anyways, they, they, they can, everything they wrote is just valuable. Mm-hmm. So that's why I think people should get this, this book because not only did he preach in action, but what he he slid under the doors caused the conversion of seven two thousand people made up this volume called the Catholic Controversy. It's a defense of the faith. And then once people read through it all, not only will they know their own faith, but they can also defend their faith too. Yeah, I don't know any other book that's published that uh, uh, converted that many people. (laughs) Then he talks about the councils of the church. Yeah. You know, what are the qualities of a true council? Well, you know, Steve, you can't just go next month and say, I'm going to start a council of the church. You know, the Pope has to be either there or he has to have a legate sent or he has to send a letter saying, okay, this is going to be an authentic council because I, as the Pope, the vicar of Christ have the authority to say yay or nay. And then of course, uh, it it should be presented to the Pope to see if he approves it or not after they've come to their conclusions. So he's attacking again, this Protestant notion that, okay, I'm just going to go set up my own council. We'll we'll figure out what the rule of faith is. We don't need the Catholic Church for that. We'll just do that on our own. So he makes it self-evident. You can't do that. You have to have the authority of God who set up the church, Jesus Christ, who said, Peter, you're a rock. And upon this rock, I'll build my church. Whatever you hold bound will be held bound. Whatever you hold loose will be loose. So he... Jesus Christ gave that authority to him, the Pope, the Vicar of Christ, and all of his successors, and it's a visible church. That's how God set it up. And for a man that's, well, they when they said when he died, he saw, they saw clock marks underneath his desk because mm-hmm. he was just uh, on top like, like a duck, they say. On top, you know, cool, calm, confident, but underwater, your feet are just going a million miles an hour. He had the incredible hulk inside him in terms of anger, but he never let it come out. He was able to control his motions. And for to see him, I guess, argue in, a, argue in the truest sense of two people coming together to find truth and not, you know, what we think of basically, let me try to smack that guy's words and, you know, smack him in the face yeah. with his own words and belittle him. And, you know, you see on TV the talking heads. Let's defeat the other person, talk right. over them, things like that. Where he was and his ability to write and discuss and do apologetics with that temperament, uh, that's only something that a grace of God won. But that's something as an example for us to not to let our anger show when we're discussing with family or relatives or friends and be like a Francis, pray to him to be able to keep cool, calm, and confident, as well as knowledgeable as the readings for the Holy Mass coming up this Sunday is the uh, eulogy on charity. And, if you can you know, move a mountain but have no charity, I don't think you're going to convert anybody. Yeah, that's a very good point, Steve, because God usually uses people that struggle with advice and they overcome it with the power of God. And 
So that makes St. Francis of, Ex of Sales an example for people that are angry by temperament. That wait a minute, no, no, this guy, I think they did a like they did an autopsy and they could see that he had a lot of bile because he was always fighting against just blowing up. Yeah. You know, it was it was even in his 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 body when he died. So that shows that people that have this anger, there's no excuse. You know, St. Francis Sales begged God for the grace to overcome the bad parts of his temperament. And that's what happened. He, he confounds the the norms of, of human nature. And it's because the, the power of God came to the very essence of him and, and changed him. He still had these temperaments and movements that he had to overcome, but God was constantly uh, coming down more deeply. He was receiving his communions with greater fervor as time went on, like what happens in, in the normal course in the spiritual life. And he became more and more fervent over time. What are something, can a kid, could a 16-year-old, uh, 20-year-old, I mean, what is the age preference for somebody to read this? Can a, can a young person, say like altar, maybe serving at the altar, 8 to 15, can they get, get the gist of this just as well as a, uh, I don't know, 40-year-old? I mean, is this something that you should, that homeschoolers can learn to teach homeschool apologetics in a sense? Well, he talks about just the simple truths. Like I'm even looking here, he talks about purgatory. Uh -huh. So, you know, the children of Fatima were shown hell. So he talks about purgatory in here. It's, it's, it's probably not too hard for people that are like seven-year-old, like the children of Fatima, to learn about the truths of Holy Mother Church. So we just live in an age where um, the maturity of, of children is a lot less than it used to be back then, but it doesn't take long to get a child in the right environment and, and teach them some of the things. So if it's someone that's young, I think it'd be good if someone would read it to them so that, that there can be explanation by the person reading it to them. But my guess is, Someone that's mature, just around the age of twelve or thirteen, they could they could definitely read this for the first time. I was thinking of uh, when his uh, uh, partner in crime, in a sense, uh, Saint uh, Jane Francis de Chantel, when she was what four or five, the story goes that a Calvinist gave her a gift and she threw it in the fire, and she <laughs> looked at him and goes, "And so will you be if you do not convert." So, yes, you mentioned when you said the, the young of our age were a little bit different, but could you imagine a five-year-old today saying that to an adult and, you know, give it a gift and throw it in the fire and say, you don't convert, you're going to be like that little book I just threw in there. That was an inspiration from the Holy Spirit for sure. Yes. That's awesome. <laughs> so what are some other things, like what was one of uh, Francis's uh, aspirations or uh, influences? I know... Bellarmine was one of a big one. There's a story of him saying that uh, he asked his parents for three things, uh, his bravery, his missile, and the uh, the controversies of Bellarmine. So he got a lot of his apologetics from him, uh, and they were good friends anyways, but it shows that the doctors were friends. Well, that, back then they weren't doctors, but the doctors, that you know, what we know of, they were friends. They could, the, the saints are friends with each other, even in life. 
Yeah, that's, I mean, it's just so neat when you look at the different saints that were with each other, like Saint um, Philip Neri, he was surrounded by so many saints in Rome. And it's like saints, their souls are attracted to each other because they just want to talk about God. They just want to focus on the only thing that matters, and that's their eternal salvation. So saints attract each other. It's so neat that St. Francis Stells inspired um, St. John de Chantel to start the nuns of the visitation. And there were some nuns of the visitation uh, near me when I was going to seminary in Emmitsburg, Maryland. So that that friendship 400 years ago had an effect on me by there being some nuns that would have these beautiful masses that I would go to off campus when I was in the seminary. So. Uh, Father, what are some final thoughts on Francis that you can think of? Well, he has another volume in this set called The Consoling Thoughts that I'm currently reading. And it just reminds me of how calm he was through adversity. So, you know, we've been through a lot in the last three or four years. So these consoling thoughts help us to see the hand of divine providence. So I think he's a, a saint that helps us to see that it's through adversity that we grow in virtue and that the gifts of the Holy Spirit come upon us. So I just recommend the introduction to the devout life, his sermons. So that would complete the four volume set here. These are just spiritual classics. And when people come to me for spiritual direction at the beginning, I always tell them, you ought to start reading the introduction to the devout life because it's just a very simple beginning of how to pursue the interior life and to let God take over. So that's what I would say. You can't go wrong with St. Francis de Sales. I mean, look at the fruit, 72,000 people converted. They loved him as a bishop. And one last thought, it's an old, an old soul type of thought. He was married to his diocese. Mm -hmm. When the Pope asked him to be elevated, he, he just, no, I'm just a poor, simple bishop. I'm just going to stay here if I can. And that's just something beautiful we've lost. Pastors used to be in their parishes for 40 or 50 years. They would baptize someone, marry them, and sometimes even bury them. Yeah. And so all along the way, they would get to see the souls grow. And that's, he's got that old soul. I mean, yeah, 400 years ago is when he lived. But in our modernistic times, he's a great example to bring back the Catholicism that we used to have before modernism, the synthesis of air struck uh, the current situation we find ourselves. Yeah, there's all kinds of great stories. I mean, him being, a, as you mentioned, a bishop, he didn't want to live in the uh, in the house because it was too grand for him, he said, and he would let right. the let the poor come in and eat, and sometimes he would stay up all night reading or writing and taking care of uh, whoever came in, and the door was, basically the door was always open. And, uh, yeah, he never never wanted to get you know gave the money away, give everything away, and just it's cool to it's cool to see those stories. Like obviously back then, I'm, I'm sure there were bishops living a high life, and uh, mm -hmm. we might think that it's oh it's just the modern thing. I'm sure it was happening back then. The only yeah. the only things that have changed are the actors and electricity anymore. 
<laughs> but Father, before you go, can you give everybody a final blessing? And yes, tell them yeah. about your website. Tell them about your website too. Oh, my website. Yeah. We've got the League of St. Martin, and we are promoting the Holy Face. I'm currently working on um, another book called The Total Consecration to the Holy Face. And Steve, I really have been drawn to just write about the interior life. So there's so much interference going on right now with the devil and communism and the revolution, the elites that we we were created to be in union with God. And I hope to condense uh, Father Redrigo Garilu Garange's Three Ages of the Interior Life. And I'm on chapter 20 of uh, 33. So that should be coming out by 10 next year. Mm -hmm. So that's in the works. So I'm starting to do parish missions. I'm getting asked to go and speak about the Holy Face, which is the devotion that's destined to save society. It's specifically calls out the revolution and communism. So we're we're growing a lot of prayer groups around the, the world to, to pray the, these prayers in the devotion to the Holy Face, just as it was revealed to Sister Mary St. Peter that they would have the monthly meetings. So we promote the Arch Confraternity of the Holy Face and the Confraternity of the Rosary because we want people to enroll in that. And my goal before I die is that a million people enroll in the Arch Confraternity of the Holy Face because this is a spiritual army, I think, that can really do some damage against the evil that we face ourselves with. And one of the first members was St. Therese, a little child, and of the Holy Face. Mm -hmm. And lastly, I'll just say, when people join confraternities, they get to, to share in the spiritual power of all the members. And Our Lady, under the holy name of God, she's praying for us to protect us from what is going to come in the future. So people tell me, Father, what can I do? Well, join the Arch Confraternity of the Holy Face and the Confraternity of the Rosary and get on your knees. Be the best Catholic you can be. Don't try to be the president of the U.S. or the governor of your state. That's, that's politics. That's a tough game. To be the best Catholic you can be, that's what the League of St. Martin is promoting, teaching people how to pray um, according to the way that Jesus told Sister Mary St. Peter how to defeat and cross swords with the communists. It's a whole blueprint. So I could go on and on with that, but I'll stop right there. Well, I'm sure St. Francis uh, did some praying too. He, he wrote, but I bet he was on his knees a lot. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Back in those days, uh, I do the uh, breviary pre fifth. Brief 62, it really takes a lot out of me. I mean, I I had to pray right before this, and I'm looking at the clock because I'm, I'm almost always behind praying the, the breviary. But the church back then really encouraged their clerics to pray. So if you do the breviary, do a holy hour, do your mass, do uh, 15 decades of the rosary, there's only like three hours left in the yeah. day to eat and to talk to people. And that's really awesome because... When I started praying like they used to pray back then, it's uh, one priest once told me, you won't have any time to commit 
sins of the flesh because you always got to be praying. So yeah. it's pretty, it's pretty neat. Yeah. That makes sense. Uh, Father, yes, before you run, can you give everyone a, a blessing? Yes. Benedictio de omnipotentes, patris et filis, spiritus angescendit, super vos et maniat semper. Amen. Thank you, Father. You're welcome, Steve.